Thank you, Azure, for your ministry and music. This afternoon, as we consider our Lord and Savior's death on the cross, we're going to be considering three prophecies of Scripture that come from the Old Testament that are ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament, uh, specifically in the Gospel accounts. We're going to begin with the prophecy concerning Jesus' suffering leading up to his death. And we're going to call this prophecy the prophecy of silence. More specifically, the prophecy of Jesus' silence in response to those trying him and mocking him. Pause to think with me for just a moment about your own life. When you are insulted, when you are accused of something that you never did, when someone speaks against you, when so someone says something humiliating to you, my question to you as you consider your own life is how do you respond? How do you respond? Insult them or accuse them or speak against them or humiliate them? Often we want revenge. But what about simply defending yourself? So forget revenge, but what about just defending yourself? You're falsely accused. At the very least, you want to defend yourself. You want to clear your name. Say, I didn't do that. Or, no, I'm not. Our most natural response to someone saying something against us is to say something against them or back to them, to respond right back with our words. And we're going to see in Jesus's response as we consider his suffering and his death on the cross when people spoke against him how did he respond so our theme for this message is a consideration of the prophecy and fulfillment of jesus's silence and the impact it should have on us again that's a consideration of the prophecy and fulfillment of jesus's silence and the impact it should have on us and i'd invite you to turn with me if you're not there already to isaiah 53 and we're going to just consider verse 7, which is where our prophecy is found. Isaiah 53, verse 7. And uh, as we look at this prophecy, we're going to consider three things. We're going to first look at the prophecy itself. Second, we're going to look at its fulfillment in the Gospels. And then third, we're going to look at the impact. What should the impact be, or what should this prophecy's impact be upon us? We're going to actually look at one of Jesus' disciples' letters. So we're going to look at the prophecy, the fulfillment, and then its impact. Look with me at Isaiah 53, and we'll read verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So first, the consideration of the prophecy itself. We'll break this prophecy down into three sections. First, we see the Messiah would suffer. If you look again at verse 7, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. So Isaiah, here, as he writes this prophecy, presents the context or the setting for what is said in the verse. He gives two words to describe the suffering and hardship and the humiliation that the Messiah, what it would be like, what this suffering would be like. The amazing thing as we consider this context or as we consider this setting of this prophecy um, or of ultimately Jesus' response is we see that earlier Isaiah presents to us that the Messiah 
deserved none of this. He was innocent. If you look with me at verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we find here that he wasn't suffering because of something he did, but ultimately he was suffering on behalf of his people. He was suffering because, something, because of something his people did. The Messiah was innocent. And this innocence is important to remember as we consider this prophecy and specifically or especially as we think about the Messiah's response. So this sets the context for the main thing I want to view in this prophecy, and that is the Messiah's response. How will he respond to this oppression and affliction, this suffering and humiliation while being innocent? The second thing from this prophecy is we, that we'll consider is the Messiah's response. If you look with me at verse 7 again, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and then it says, yet he opened not his mouth. Yet he opened not his mouth. So he is going through a great deal of suffering. He is being humiliated, and yet we're told he stays silent. He doesn't say a word. His mouth does not open. And it's amazing because he's innocent. He doesn't deserve what's being done to him. He's not at fault here. And yet he doesn't try to plead his innocence. He doesn't try to plead that he doesn't deserve these things. And even if he had done something wrong, we could probably sympathize with him if he just make an excuse or try and explain why he did what he did. But here we see the Messiah is said to be innocent. And yet he stays silent during his oppression and affliction. So his response will be one of silence. Third, as we look at this prophecy, we get a comparison to emphasize the Messiah's response. If you look with me at Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And then it says, Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So to emphasize this response of silence, the Messiah is compared to a sheep that is about to be killed who stays silent. In this phrase, he, did, he opened not his mouth is repeated again to emphasize the Messiah's response of silence. So that's the prophecy. That is what is said would take place for the Messiah. Now second, a consideration of this prophecy's fulfillment in the Gospels. And we'll see that Jesus does not open his mouth in defense or retaliation during his trial before his death. So I'd invite you to turn with me to the New Testament now as we think about the fulfillment. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll look at verses 11 through 14. And we could have looked at several instances of this fulfillment from the different gospel accounts. But I want to just point us to one in Matthew 27 verses 11 through 14, as we see Jesus' silence before the chief priests, the elders, and Pilate. 
Matthew 27, and we'll begin at verse 11. It says this, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So we see here in this passage that Jesus' silence is emphasized over and over and over again. Four times it's emphasized. We saw twice in verses 12 through 14 that Matthew says Jesus gave no answer. In response to the chief priests, the elders, and Pilate, which should immediately make us think of our prophecy in which it was said, he opened not his mouth. And to emphasize it even more, Matthew adds on and says in verse 14, not even to a single charge. It's one thing to remain silent when someone says one or two things against us that we know are false. When people say things that shouldn't be said to us, we might be able to have some self-control, even if we're seething on the inside, to not say anything. But when insults start piling up, when one thing is said after another that we know is not true, then we let into them. Then we respond. Then we've had enough. But as we think about Jesus here, as we look at the fulfillment here, we see this isn't the case with Jesus. We are told not even to a single charge did he respond. And that should amaze us, knowing our own selves, knowing how we usually respond to people saying things that are false against us or insults against us. That should amaze us as we consider Jesus' response here. But we see Matthew isn't done, though, as we see the fourth emphasis on Jesus' silence from this Matthew passage, showing this prophecy has been fulfilled by Jesus and that is Pilate's reaction to Jesus' silence. If you look with me at the end of verse 14. At the end of verse 14 it says, So that the governor was greatly amazed. Greatly amazed. The idea here is that Jesus' response has an impact upon Pilate. When Matthew says the governor was greatly amazed, it doesn't mean that Pilate just thought it was odd and he just forgot about it but it means that Pilate was blown away by this response. This is an extreme statement. Pilate was impressed to a high degree. Pilate was very taken aback by Jesus' response. Pilate here emphasizes Jesus' response of silence, or his response emphasizes Jesus' response of silence. This wasn't the norm. This wasn't how Pilate was used to seeing people on trial and how they would usually respond. What Jesus was doing was out of the ordinary. It was rare, even unheard of. Now, lastly, as we consider this prophecy, we'll look at, a, we'll look at the prophecy and fulfillment's impact. So we've considered our prophecy that the Messiah was said that to have suffered silently. He would not defend himself he would not retaliate. We looked at the fulfillment of this prophecy with the chief priests, the elders, and Pilate. And now I want to close by us considering what impact should this prophecy and its fulfillment have upon us. 
If you turn to our last passage, to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 25 together. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read verses, or we'll be looking at verses 21 through 25 as we consider the impact. And we get this from one of Jesus' disciples' letters. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at 21 through 25. And, and what we see from 1 Peter 2 is we see that we are called to follow the model of Jesus in his silence. If you look with me at verses 21 through 23 of chapter 2. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter brings up Jesus' response to the suffering, to this injustice in his life, and that was silence. As we just looked at in Isaiah 53 with the prophecy, and then in its fulfillment in Matthew 27. And so too, Peter is saying, we must respond with silence. When someone mocks us, we must not mock back. When someone insults us, we must not insult back. When someone just continues to bash us with their words, hurting us deeply with what they're saying, we are called to not respond. To be silent rather than get even. To be silent rather than even defend ourselves. And we thought, and as we thought about in the beginning, this goes against how we normally would want to respond. Even it's, it goes against how we're normally encouraged to respond by others, by society. When someone is just ridiculing us nonstop, talking bad on us, we often just can't put up with it anymore. But think about Jesus. How unjust, how unfair, how terrible of a thing this was that was done to Jesus on this day that we're remembering today. And yet not a word of retaliation, not a word of defense. He endured through it. We might ask, how are we expected to do this? How are we expected to respond in silence, knowing how hard it is? And we see from our verse or we see from this passage that we get a command and a comfort in this passage. First, we're commanded and called to do this, as verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, to follow the example of Jesus in this. And then we get a comfort. In verse 23, if you look with me there, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. To him who judges justly. So just as Jesus relied upon God in these injustices and horrible words he experienced, we too are to trust God as we go through our suffering. But not only do we see that we are called to follow the silence of Jesus, but we also see the result. If you look with me at our last set of verses, 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. They say, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
So when we think of the purpose, when we think of why we should respond in silence, as Jesus responded in silence to his suffering, to his death on the cross, we see that Jesus ultimately accomplished our salvation. The result of his suffering, the result of his response of silence was salvation for us. Certainly we cannot say our suffering can save people from their sins, but it can be used by God to save people. People can see the way that we respond and see a difference in us, that we don't retaliate, that we don't seek to hurt back, that we don't need to defend every injustice done against us. And that example can be used by God to bring someone to a saving knowledge of him. The letter of 1 Peter makes this very clear. So that's the prophecy of Jesus' silence. The prophecy, its fulfillment, and its impact upon us. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for just this consideration of your suffering, of the way in which you suffered great injustices. Things were said about you that were completely false, and yet, as we considered your response that you were silent, that you didn't open your mouth. And Lord, I simply pray that you would help us to respond as you responded, that we would follow your example and your model in responding to things that are said against us, insults, mockery that is done against us. Help us to respond with silence. And Lord, ultimately use our example to bring people to a saving knowledge of you. And in your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Sarah, for that ministry and music. You know, there are many prophecies of the Messiah found in the Old Testament. The English theologian Henry Lydon once estimated that there are over 330 distinct predictions of the Old Testament, which literally are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And of those many predictions, perhaps two of the most famous messianic chapters in the Old Testament are Isaiah 53, which we just heard from, and Pastor Reed will be expounding on as well but the other of which is Psalm 22. And I'd like us to talk about the latter of those. So if you'd like to, talk, uh, to turn to Psalm 22, that's where we'll be for this portion, specifically Psalm 22, verse 16. But in that Psalm, there are several predictions related to Jesus's death in just those 30, uh, 31 verses. For example, Jesus's cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the mocking of the people during his crucifixion or his thirst on the cross, or the piercing of his hands and feet. And today I'd like to focus on just one of those predictions, that is verse 16, Jesus surrounding by, uh, surrounded by evildoers, and then they pierce his hands and his feet. When we think of Good Friday, after all, uh, we usually think of the cross itself and all of the agony and the suffering associated with it. In the crucifixion, the Son of God was nailed to a cross of wood, taking a punishment that he didn't deserve. And so it's fitting for us to focus on this particular text today. Here's the prediction found in Psalm 22, verse 16. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now as far as the fulfillment of that particular psalm, there are many passages that we could list. Um, specifically about that part about evildoers and dogs, but we'll get into that later. For now, here's just one verse from one of the Gospels that shows the fulfillment of Jesus' hands and feet being pierced. 
And that's Luke 23, 33, and you don't have to turn there. But it says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. The Gospels all contain references to Jesus being crucified, of course. And for anyone who is familiar with that kind of punishment, you know it involves nails that pierce the body near the hands and the feet. But if we go even further, we have specific references to Jesus' pierced hands and feet in Luke 24, verses 38 through 41. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have something to eat? And so that's the prediction in Psalm 22:16, and also its fulfillment. So let's dive in a little bit further. In Psalm 22, uh, this is one of the many psalms that were written by King David. The title of the psalm before verse 1 says, A Psalm of David. And the psalm is widely assumed to have been written during the period of time in which he was running from King Saul. The psalm speaks of David as feeling forsaken by God, being mocked by others, as if he feels surrounded by his enemies from every side, exhausted, forsaken, near death. Yet David cries aloud to God in this psalm for deliverance. Certainly there are many aspects in this psalm where uh, David is using a bit of hyperbole, at least in regards to his own situation. For we don't know of any instance where David's enemies literally cast lots for his clothing, as it says in verse 18, or where his bones were literally out of joint, as in verse 14. But like in so many other psalms, we see that David is using these extreme uh, bits of language just to describe how in danger he felt in his own situation as he was being chased by Saul here. But at the same time, as David was writing Psalm 22 under the inspiration of God, we recognize that this is more than just David describing his own situation. You know, it's far more than that. It's a specific series of prophecies that describe what the Messiah would ultimately go through. So how do we know that? Well, because we see at least five different things that happened to this individual described in the psalm that also happened specifically to Jesus that could not have been a coincidence in any way. For example, in verses 1 and 2, the individual says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus also said on the cross. Verse 18, it says, Evildoers cast lots for this person's clothing. And the same happened to Jesus. Verse 8 a group of mockers say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. And the same happened to Jesus. And again, we could see not just in general, but literally those exact words were spoken to him. These details match so perfectly that there's no possible way that all of these things could have happened to Jesus just as a coincidence. There would have been no way to orchestrate his life in such a way to match these things so perfectly as they do. But rather, we see Psalm 22 is a prophecy of what the Messiah would go through, literally written hundreds of years before Jesus would ever walk the earth. So let's break down what it says. Verse 16 begins this way. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. And in this text, King David describes these evildoers as dogs. Now today, we have to be reminded that uh, Dogs weren't always regarded in the same way as we do today. Today, dogs are seen as pets. Uh, dogs are cute. Dogs are called a man's best friend. And while I resisted it for a number of years, yes, we even have a dog in our house now. 
Um, our dog Theo is not very large. Maybe he's about two inches tall or so. He really has no help at all in warding against intruders, uh, warding them off, but Sarah and the kids think he's cute. Well, back in biblical times, uh, that's not how you would have described dogs. Dogs were scavengers. They were wild. And in this case, it's as if these evildoers, who are described as dogs, were waiting until this person was dead so that they could tear at his limbs. It says, a company of evildoers encircles me, and that's the real picture here. And that was true of Jesus in a number of ways. So if we just look at the entirety of the story of his trials, his crucifixion, and you imagine that picture, this company of dogs encircling him, wanting his death, wanting harmful things to come upon him, you see that happening in a number of different ways. First of all, in Matthew 26, 47, it says, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Later on that evening, it says in Mark 14, 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Then Mark 14, 55 and 56, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Then later on, during that time in the early morning, Luke 23, 10 and 11 say this, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And then, after Pilate questions Jesus, he brings him out before the crowds, and again we see this same picture, as if evil dogs are encircling him, mocking him, wishing his death, Pilate said again to them in Mark 15, 12 through 14, Then what shall I do to the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And then later the crowd say in Matthew 27, His blood be on us and our children. Then when the guards took Jesus away from the crowds, it says they did this. Matthew 27, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And then after that, he was crucified, hanging on the cross. It says in Matthew 27, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And later on in that same passage, it says, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Why do I go into all these different passages? Well, when you put them all together, you see this response overwhelmingly over and over again of people encircling him, mocking him time and time again, wishing for his death. Evildoers encompassed him, just as we see it in Psalm 22. But then that brings us to the second half of this verse. Again, back to Psalm 22, verse 16. It says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Now, if you have a study Bible, or even a Bible with footnotes in it, you might see a footnote that says uh, that some scholars translate this Hebrew word as like a lion. 
And so, in that case, the alternate translation is, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. And you might say, well, how could you possibly get such a different wording, like a lion versus piercing? And the reason for that is, in some of the earliest manuscripts, we have the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew words, without the vowels, and the vowels were often written as points, just tiny dots. So, in this case, when you have two verbs that are very similar in their consonants, Somebody might say, oh, these two words, piercing or like a lion, are very similar. And without those vowel points, we're trying to figure out what it is. So which translation is it? Well, from everything I've read, trying to say that it's like a lion is actually a misunderstanding of the Hebrew. And the better translation is really exactly what we have in our English Bibles, where it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Or literally, the way it would read is, evildoers encircle me, piercing my hands and feet. And the reason we know that is because 200 to 300 years before Jesus walked the earth, uh, there was a very prominent translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, written in Greek. And in that translation, into Greek, from Hebrew, they used this very same word, piercing, and not like a lion. And that's how it was understood by the Jewish people well before Jesus ever came onto the scene. So nobody could make the claim that, well, we're modifying it here to fit the details of the life of Jesus. No, it really does say that piercing my hands and feet. And the point is that this verse is just as striking as it seems, for it is a prophecy of Jesus's crucifixion. Now, when we step back and realize that we think about crucifixion as a whole, many of you might know details about this just from being in church or growing up in the church, but crucifixion um, was a form of torture and execution in the ancient world that involved fixing a person to a wooden post or a tree or cross using ropes or nails. It was likely first used either by the Persians or the Assyrians, though we often associate it with the Romans because that's what happens here. But they certainly weren't the first ones to use it. There were many others who did before them. Crucifixion was usually done in the following way. The victim was beaten or whipped. The victim was forced to carry his cross, or in many instances, the crossbar portion to the place of his crucifixion. The victim was fastened by ropes or nails to the crossbeam, and then finally they were lifted up on a wooden post or a tree and left to die hanging on that cross. Depending on the situation, there were various forms of that cross. Sometimes it was just a vertical pole, depending on uh, the nation and the period of time in history we're talking about. Other times, you could picture it more like a capital T. Um, In other instances, it was more like a lowercase t, just like you see up here. It would seem that Jesus' cross was exactly like the kind of cross we have displayed here in this building, because Luke 23, 38 tells us that there was also an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. And since it was over him, that would imply that the wooden cross extended above his head, just like, again, we see here. But Jesus would have been nailed to a cross like this. And Roman literature attests to the use of nails in the crucifixion. Authors such as Seneca and Josephus all mention them. Nails were usually driven through the hands or the wrists of those who were being executed to support their weight once they hung on the cross. Nails were driven through the feet or the heels of the victim for the same reason. And in fact, there have been archaeological finds in which the heel bone of a man was found with about a five-inch nail that was driven through it. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced through for this same reason. So what does that all mean? means that Jesus was executed by Roman authorities in this terrible and agonizing way. He suffered floggings, abuse, 
He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was whipped. He was disfigured and bruised in an extreme way. After that, he was forced to carry this, heaven, heavenly, this heavy wooden cross, excuse me, this heavy wooden cross to the place uh, where he would ultimately be put to death. He had long nails hammered through his hands and feet. He was hoisted into the air, bleeding naked and having a full weight of his body placed on those nails through those limbs. He was on the cross for several hours as people walked by and mocked him. And he died on that cross in a way that's often too horrible for us to really grasp. The Roman author and politician Cicero called it the cruelest and most terrible punishment one could endure. What should our reaction be to all of this? How should we respond in our heart when we read these words in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, that they pierced his hands and feet, ultimately pointing to the fact that our Lord was crucified? I like the way John Piper summarizes this in, in this book, which I actually referenced yesterday in our Monday Thursday service, entitled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And he highlights the fact that, yes, while it is something really terrible and something amazing when we consider all that Jesus went through as he hung there on that cross, as, as he endured it all for our sake, yet he did it for our behalf and for the glory of God that he would be willing to do so is quite an amazing thing to ponder. He says this, the death of Christ is not only the demonstration of God's love, John 3.16, but it's also the extreme expression of Christ's own love for all who receive it as their treasure. The early witnesses who suffered most for being Christians were captured by this fact. Christ loved me and gave himself for me, as it says in Galatians 2.20. They took the self-giving act of Christ's sacrifice very personally. They said he loved me and gave himself for me. My heart is swayed, Piper writes, and I embrace the beauty and bounty of Christ as my treasure. And there flows into my heart this great reality, the love of Christ for me. So I say with those early witnesses, he loved and gave himself for me as well. And what do I mean by that? I mean that he paid the highest possible price to give me the greatest gift possible. And what is that? It's the gift he prayed for at the end of his life in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. So in his suffering and death, John 1 says we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen enough to capture us for his cause, for the best is yet to come. He died to secure this for us, and that is the love of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Son of God, we thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was in, willing to endure such mockery at the hands of sinners, such shame and such pain on the cross. We recognize that he did so, not against his will, but of his own volition, to die for our sins so that we might be redeemed. And in this we see a great love that you showed for us, though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for this immeasurable gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Azure, for that ministry and music. It is essential that in seeking to understand the prophecies 
of the Old Testament that we stand in awe of the specificity with which they speak. These prophecies are not the mere generalities of conjecture. Rather, they provide clear references to future events and circumstances. The details are rather amazing. We are going to look at one more remarkable prophecy that we will consider this afternoon. It's the prophecy regarding the burial of Jesus. The verse that we are considering is Isaiah 53, verse 9. It reads, And they made the grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The NASB translates this, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So my theme this afternoon is the remarkable prophecy of Christ's burial, that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked, yet buried with the rich. And so I begin by asking the question, why is this so remarkable? There are a number of reasons why this is such a remarkable prophecy. First, this prophecy is remarkable because of its inherent contradiction. At one and the same time, Jesus' body is supposed to be disgraced, and yet it will be honored. Notice verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men. This is a contradiction. A prophecy has two elements in which they are mutually exclusive. To be assigned a grave with the wicked is antithetical to being buried with the rich. You see, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish leaders. Matthew 20, verse 18, Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. The reason that he was condemned to death by the Jewish leaders is because they accused him of blasphemy. In saying that he was the Son of God, they understood the claim that he was equal with God. And so they accused him of blasphemy, for they did not believe that he was God in the flesh. And so in John 19, verse 7, we read that the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, and they said, He ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Because the Jewish leaders were under the authority of Rome, they could not enforce the death penalty. They could only recommend it to the civil authorities. And so we read in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and following, See, uh, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. The significance of this for our consideration this afternoon is that when when one was condemned to death because of blasphemy, his burial was to be one of disgrace. Josephus, the Jewish historian, notes that the rule of Sanhedrin was, and I quote, let him who blasphemes God 
have a disgraceful and obscure burial, end quote. So by Jewish law, he was to be buried in disgrace, in an obscure burial. There was a place in the Valley of Hinnom where bodies would be just thrown into a heap, and oftentimes there were fires in that locality to burn up the dead bodies as well. Jesus was then condemned to death by the Roman government. And part of the curse of the death penalty by the Roman law was one of two eventualities. One was that oftentimes they just let the body hang upon the cross and just let it rot, deteriorate, and let the vultures and animals just uh, tear at the body. Or they would bury it in disgrace in a communal grave that was known to be a place for the wicked dead. The prophecy is that despite being assigned a grave with the wicked, that is that that was the condemnation and that what was to happen, that he was to be buried with the wicked, the suffering servant would have instead a grave with the rich. Now this prophecy is remarkable because of its specific fulfillment. Jesus, though assigned a grave with the wicked, is indeed going to be buried with the rich. In Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 57, Jesus having died, when it was evening, there came a rich man, it says. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So here is this Jesus who's buried in a tomb of the rich man, just as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. But you see this prophecy is also remarkable because of the turn of events that were required for its fulfillment. From being assigned a grave with the wicked to being actually buried with the rich required a remarkable turn of events. First, there had to be a tremendous turn of events in the life of Joseph. Prior to the crucifixion, Joseph had been a secret disciple of Jesus. According to John 19, verse 38, it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, he didn't want anyone to know that he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 19 tells us why. It says, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Uh, He didn't want to bear the shame, didn't want to bear the retaliation. He didn't want to bear the disgrace of being identified or associated with Jesus. And it's important to keep in mind that prior to the crucifixion, Joseph, this secret disciple of Jesus, was also a member of the Sanhedrin. For it tells us in verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, 
referring to the Sanhedrin, referring to the ruling body of the Israelites. It is that body that condemned Jesus to death. And the reason that he condemned Jesus to death was because he was afraid, it tells us, of the Jews. He didn't want to identify with Jesus. He didn't want to be outed as a disciple. And so he is actually willing to go along with having Jesus crucified. Now just imagine this individual who has no integrity, no gumption to stand up and defend Jesus. Now Jesus, having died, musters up the courage to go and ask Pilate for the body. In fact, the scriptures make us take note of that very fact. Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. He summoned up the courage. This man who had no courage before the crucifixion now has courage and is willing to go against what was decided by the council and was willing to go to Pilate and request the body. One might wonder why after the crucifixion, after all these things took place. But not only was there a change in mind of Joseph, there also had to be a change in mind for Pilate. For Pilate condemned Jesus to death despite the fact that Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. In John chapter 19, verses 12 through 16, it reads, From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Jewish Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus. The reason that he handed them over was because he was afraid of these Jewish leaders, that they would report him as being no friend of Caesar, of supporting anarchy and rebellion. So now there had to be a real turn of events in the life of Pilate to violate the law of the Jews and to violate the Roman law. And yet, he is going to do so. Both of these leaders who were involved in assigning Jesus to death and the place of the wicked, both of them are going to turn around now and assign him a place with the rich. But what is, again, remarkable about this prophecy 
is the fact that the prophecy speaks of its fulfillment due to Jesus' innocence. If you look at verse 9, again of Isaiah 53, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was rich men in his death. And now the NAS, because, because, which is a good translation here, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, because he was innocent, because he was innocent, these individuals felt guilty because an innocent man had been put to death. Jesus, most importantly, was innocent in the eyes of God the Father. The people thought that he was guilty as they stood around the cross and mocked him. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So Jesus was innocent in the sight of God. Isaiah 53.11 says, As a result of his anguish of soul, he will see it, that is God the Father, and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant. So here, God the Father refers to Jesus as the righteous one, as his servant who is dying on that cross. Not wicked, the righteous one. But not only did God the Father view Jesus as righteous. Pilate also knew that Jesus was innocent when Pilate condemned him to death. Repeatedly, Pilate spoke of Jesus' innocence prior to the crucifixion. In Luke chapter 23, verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. After he was examined, after all the charges were laid out. I find no guilt in this man. And then later in that same passage, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I washed my hands of this. I want nothing to do with this. This is wrong. He's willing to say it, but he's not willing to let Jesus go free. 
He's willing to say it, but he's not willing to take the stand. Instead, he gives in, blames it on the Jewish leaders. Says, that's what you want, then you go and do it. But he won't come to Jesus' defense. Both Pilate and Joseph knew that they were putting to death an innocent man. And they had to live with that. And Joseph, a follower of Jesus. But it is because that Jesus was innocent that they had this tremendous change of heart and mind. And so when Joseph gathers up the courage and goes to Pilate and requests the body, Pilate gives it to Joseph. And Joseph takes the body and places it in his own tomb that was hewn out of the stone, a place for his burial. So Jesus was buried in the place of the rich. It's, it's really a remarkable prophecy. Remarkable because of its inherent contradiction. On the one hand, he's assigned a grave with the wicked, and yet he's going to be buried with the rich. The prophecy is remarkable because of its specific fulfillment. He is buried in the tomb of a very rich man, namely Joseph. The prophecy is remarkable because of the turn of events that had to transpire in its fulfillment. Weak people becoming strong. People who were not willing to take a stand prior to a person's death now are willing to take a stand after he dies. What, what a strange time. What could be done? What, how could they make it right at this point? Well, the answer is they couldn't make it right. The best thing they could do was try to honor him in his death. And that's what they did. The prophecy is remarkable because it attests to the innocence of Jesus concerning the charges that were brought against him and how he was viewed. One of the great takeaways of this afternoon, I believe, is the way in which the scriptures speak with such specificity and authority concerning the events of Christ's death. These are not predictions like one reads a horoscope that says something mysterious is going to happen to you this day or whatever. These are specific events, specific circumstances that take place that point not only to what is going to take place, but to the nature of the one who is put it, being put to death, that he truly is the Son of God, that he really was innocent of those charges that were brought against him. The great takeaway I would have for you today is that just as the prophecies concerning Christ's death proved to be reliable, proved to be true, 
proved to be dependable. So are the prophecies concerning his return. Christ died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back to this earth to reign. And he will. He will. Just as all these prophecies that we spoke of this afternoon, and literally hundreds more, were fulfilled, so too will all the end time prophecies be fulfilled. We invite everyone back to our church on Sunday. Those of you who are worshiping with us from a, another church, thank you for being here today, and I commend your church service to you. But uh, for our people, we're going to be focusing on the significance of the empty tomb. I'm actually going to pick up from here and then talk about uh, the significance of the tomb being empty and what we can learn from that. Trust we will have a, a glorious Lord's Day together. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this afternoon in which we could spend some time focusing upon the authority of your word. Lord, we, we stand in awe of its truthfulness. Every jot, every tittle will come to pass. Lord, we thank you for these prophecies and what they reveal to us about the Son of God. How that hundreds of years before his death. That death was foretold. A death that was unknown to the Jewish people. The Jews did not crucify their dead. They stoned them. And yet, this remarkable prophecy of pierced hands and feet, description of the cross, description of the events that are associated with the cross, Lord, give us confidence in your word and give us great appreciation for all that your word tells us, what your word reveals to us, what we know about the Lord Jesus, what we know about his resurrection, and what we know about his coming again. Bless us in our consideration and our worship of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.